As you may have noticed, I don't often read stories written by living people. Now, I really like living people. Uh, some of them. So one simple reason for doing this is that most people who are alive and write can also do things like listen and read. And so if I read living people, I have to deal with issues of doing justice to words and hoping that you, if you'd like a story, will post a comment or email the author or buy the book or steal the book or do something else that a living person would interpret as a sign of appreciation. But sometimes, like tonight, a story is good enough for me to take that risk. And so I just have to trust you to do the same. Good evening. It's Wednesday, the 7th of October, 2009, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. Trouble at Pow Crash Creek by Heather Burrell This is how I fall asleep. There's a staircase between my throat and my brain, which descends into my body. When I close my eyes, I can make myself small, and once I am small, I can push myself down the staircase. It's important to fall, but not trip. Tripping means you catch yourself, the tip of your toe where your shoes are extraneous, too much hard point or rubber. And if you catch yourself, if you pay too much attention, you will wake up in a hard, bad way. Mostly I don't trip anymore, not unless the day has been too big for itself, made messes at its edges that can't be tidied. If that's the case, then I do tend to trip, and usually I trip a lot on those days, which of course makes me angry, and when I'm angry I just want to chew something until it bleeds. But if I don't trip, I can sail down those stairs like an acrobat. Sometimes I don't even touch down. Sometimes I touch down with my hands and push off. I'm powerful and free and falling. That's the best part of the day for me, if it's a good falling. Yesterday was my twelfth birthday, and we had a brief celebration after lunch with a sugary sweet cake from the IGA in a moulded plastic container. The cake had my name on the top in mint green icing, as well as some blobby roses in yellow and a baseball hat in powder blue in the centre. It was my full name on the cake. Rational. The short form sounds a bit Indian from India and looks like a disease of the skin if you spell it like it sounds, like phonetics, rash. A real short form would be rat, I guess, which I sometimes think I would prefer and might work better with the laneway kids. I wanted to invite a couple to the party just for diversion and diversity, but Dad said the family would suffice. The family always suffices, and Mother seemed to agree. 
Anyway, she wore her clever denim wraparound skirt and my favourite blouse with a purple sheen, and Dad had said to put her hair down, so she did. We had tofu wieners for the meal part, which was not a big deviation, since, in general, we consumed them approximately four days a week. But there was also some different kind of relish and rennet-free cheese, which I believe to be slightly disgusting on the tongue, but starts to taste better when you let it sit towards the back of your mouth. Because I was twelve, Mother and Dad said they had a surprise for me. I was pretty certain it would be my own gun, since every Sunday for the last year Dad has been showing me how to use his army rifle in the bathroom. We oil it and clean it and point it towards the tiles above the bathtub. Dad says, This'll get rid of all that mildew mother's too lazy to scrub at, eh, son? And we pretend shoot, making noises like soft explosions with our mouths. But the only present was a new CD-ROM with an advanced interactive atlas from Mother. It was in a small, flat red package. It was obviously not a gun. And neither was the surprise. The surprise was coming next Thursday evening. Mother marked it on the calendar with a small, green, happy face. The surprise was a private teacher. You see, Mother and Dad have known for a long time, since I was four years old, in fact, that I am special. Possibly a genius. My aptitude was revealed in a battery of IQ tests ordered from a prestigious and advanced education corporation. I am years ahead of my age group in every possible category. Off the charts, Dad said. As you can imagine, my parents were pleased with this, so they bought me a computer in order to help me develop some of my already superior skills, and in order that I not feel inept with some of the new technologies that are becoming available to our society. Not that we approve of society necessarily. That's why the laneway kids were not invited. They're a good kind of accessory to the relatively fresh air and exercise the neighbourhood streets might provide, but really it's not such a good idea for me to form attachments to them. Once I was sitting with Dad on the balcony, and we saw something terrible and educational. There was a top-of-the-line BMX bike lying out in the alley. It was a beautiful work of craftsmanship. Dad and I agreed on that. Anyway, it was just lying there unattended, unheeded. Dad and I were remarking how unwise this was when a group of the laneway kids came tearing through like a bunch of hellcats. They were using a lot of inappropriate language and pushing each other needlessly. But they were laughing frequently as well, which I have to admit made me smile. I've noticed that most types of laughter, unless they're barky and fast, are contagious unless the laughter comes from an unpure place. The laneway kids are not exactly lily-white, but they laugh like rivers are running up and out of their mouths. Still, I stopped smiling because of what happened next. One of the kids, I think his name is Sammy, 
picked up the BMX bike and started messing around, and I saw Dad get tense and ready. He stood up and leaned his arms on the balcony railing. The muscles in his back through his t-shirt began to twitch and roll, which is how I knew he was watching with his whole body. Sammy took the bike and rode it down to the end of the lane, then on the return trip performed five or six fairly proficient wheelies, whooping like an old-fashioned Indian. Not from India. Then there was a movement from the Robertson's back porch, which is a place we all know to avoid, due to the unsavoury nature of Mr. Robertson. And Leo, who was his socially maladjusted son... I guessed it was Leo before all the blood and afterwards we knew it was Leo because of all the blood. He came ricocheting off the porch like lightning caught in a box and fell onto Sammy while making this amplified gurgling sound at the back of his throat. I turned to go back inside. I thought maybe there was someone we should call. Oh no, son, you stay right where you are, said Dad. This is important for you to see. Dad said this without turning around. I sat back down in the same chair until he battered the railing beside him softly and I understood I was to stand at his side. Leo was punching Sammy's head. Sammy was still absurdly straddling the bike although they had both been toppled and were lying next to the garbage bins and beer cases that formed the barrier at the edge of the Robertson backyard. Sammy tried to get up but he was pretty confused, I suppose due to the excitement of the wheelies followed by the one-two thuds of Leo's bludgeoning fists. The other laneway kids had gathered round but at about a metre removed, since they understood Leo's violence was not limited, predictable, or in any way decipherable, we all watched. When I could not watch, I looked at Dad, whose eyes were narrowed like a cheetah's, trained on the cluster of kids below. When he noticed me watching him, he pointed back to my lesson and nodded appraisingly. For most of his life, Dad was a soldier, which gave him a window on the world most civilians are never granted. It's a window scrubbed clean and translucent, with no rosy hue, he is fond of reminding me. It's a window that was nearly blasted all to hell when he was in the Gulf, and yet, that window, son, it's my greatest treasure. Your world view is your essence. You must polish it constantly, using all your vigilance and elbow grease. Vigilance, son, is a virtue. Vigilance is the reason we will not always be living here, in Kingston, next to the laneway and the inbreds, on the wrong side of the tracks. It is the reason why, one day, if all goes as planned, which I have every confidence it will, we will relocate to an undisclosed location and hunker in our bunker. This is one of Mother and Dad's not-so-private jokes, and it extends to and permeates all areas of their lives. Sometimes I will hear them whispering or muttering it under their breaths at each other or to themselves. It doesn't seem to matter. 
Hunker in the bunker, Mother will mumble absently while sponging off a dish, her reflection mouthing back at her in the window. And she will smile, and so will I. There is a promise in this phrase I do not fully understand, although I can feel it like a pebble in my shoe at all times. Vigilance, said Dad, and pointed down at the Sammy scene. Vigilance. Leo's blows mostly connected with Sammy's head and face, but there were times his fists would land on the pavement or get tangled in the handlebars, which would draw some unkind snickers from the crowd. Dad said for me to watch the tension in Leo's neck, because when it unwound, that was when Sammy might have a chance. At that point, Mother came to the door, and Dad said, It's nothing, just a scuffle, and she went back inside. Beside me, I felt Dad leaning forward, and then a sharp and slight sucking in of his breath, because Leo had backed off and was standing a bit like I'd seen Dad stand sometimes when his back's acting up. And once a pregnant lady at the mall, he had his feet planted about a foot apart, and he was leaning back into the atmosphere, with his hands bracing his body at the small of his back. It's over, said Dad, and let out a sigh. Come on, son, he turned to go inside, expecting me to follow. But I'll admit, I found this difficult. To Dad, I could tell the story was over. But part of my problem, as it relates to survival, is that I have a problem recognising endings, the right point to turn away. So I risked another look down at where Sammy was lying. His face was mangled and strange and unlike him. If I had to describe it, or sketch it using my paintbrush programme, I'm certain it would end up looking like some sort of riotous field of puppies, a bit like a new screensaver I downloaded, and not like a beat-up kid at all. I believe this is one of my talents, to be able to see things in the abstract, to siphon off the beauty from a scene like Sammy. All of these thoughts and images and secret satisfactions passed through me in a second. I've noticed that about myself. I am a lightning-quick thinker. But not only this, I am able to monitor myself thinking. If my thoughts are the cars on a train, well, not only can I follow that train, but I am also able to count, no, itemise every car. I haven't yet told Mother and Dad about this, since they are already more than convinced of my abilities. Besides, a person needs to keep certain things private and unobtainable, to set up quarries of important emotional and intellectual sequences, keep them safe and secret on one's hard drive. In any case, what happened next was one of Sammy's friends came over and patted his arm, almost like he might pet a dog or a new piece of furniture in passing. And of course, Sammy didn't move. I don't think Sammy was dead. I don't think that was what Dad meant. 
but I'll never know because that was when he grabbed me hard by the waist of my pants and hauled my nosy ass inside. I don't like not knowing the true end of things. It makes things untidy, and it makes it hard at the end of the day to push myself effectively down the stairs into sleep. That night I tripped several times, then stayed unpleasantly awake listening to the animal rutting sounds from Mother and Dad's room. When sleep finally came to me, it was like hands on my body, pinching and pulling, and I dreamt of black-eyed puppies and perilous puke-making wheelies, and nothing was cohesive or pleasant at all. But that was all before my twelfth birthday, and the green, happy face on the white square of the calendar, October 27th. The surprise was a teacher who would visit the apartment once or possibly twice a week, depending on how he fit the dynamic here, depending on how open he was to our particular home life, our belief systems, etc. The idea of the teacher presented a quandary for me. On one hand, I was glad that Mother and Dad had finally noticed that my intellect needed, for want of a better word, some pruning... I could tell my thoughts were beginning to thrive in awed and unexpected soil. I could observe them, but I could not always predict their strange offshoots. My teacher, I was certain, could help me cope with such growing concerns. Growing concerns. That strikes me as funny, although perhaps it's not. Certainly it is only moderately clever, Still, I would like to try it out on one of the laneway kids one day if there is ever an opportunity. Or the teacher, maybe, if he's open to pruning. I'm told the teacher is currently a student at the university. Queen's University is its name, and it's purported to be one of the country's finest. Although there was a night when I was aged approximately nine and three months when I begged to differ, we had all been awakened at one forty-seven a.m. Or at least that's when I remember leaving sleep due to a disturbance at the front of the apartment building. Before I could say Jack Frost, Dad had unbolted the door and run down the stairs and out into the sidewalk with his shotgun. Mother and I followed him, even though he kept ordering us to stay back, take cover. Our curiosity and our crankiness got the better of us. The disturbance had been caused by some purple men, wearing tin cans round their waists. They were quite obviously inebriated, although at the time I didn't have the smarts or the background knowledge to ascertain this. I was terrified. They were shouting and pointing at each other, then falling in the gutters under streetlights as if to showcase their misdemeanours. Dad shot one. It was a good shot too, but missed its mark. Not through any fault of aim, but due instead to a tin can which acted as a deflector to the bullet, making it rebound into the night and causing the purple men to remain unharmed. Scared the goddamn silver spoon big city punk ass bastards, though, according to Dad. Nevertheless, Queen's University does have a reputation for the formation of decent minds, 
and I know mother and dad would never choose a teacher rotten in his heart, with purple juice running down his cheeks and arms. No, my teacher would be someone with true credentials and capabilities. The day the teacher was to arrive, mother asked me to tidy the sitting room, and I refused. This teacher, I believed, should see us as we were, upright, unadulterated. I did not see the point in tidying, and I felt it more pertinent to attend to my research, a new interactive amusement I had downloaded which would help me to better understand the entertainments the youth of society turned to in times of boredom and isolation. When mother insisted, I slapped her gently on the wrist. And when she yelled at me with eyes like embers, I threw a rolled-up magazine in her direction. This was not successful, as the magazine, once airborne, unfurled and fell without grace to the floor. Mother unplugged the computer and watched as I squared away books and collected my sketches from the floor. Once she was satisfied, I heard her in the next room whispering to Dad. Next time I will use an eraser or a small bottle of paint. No point in mercy when there's important work to be done. I was sitting at my computer with Jedi fighter bleeping and flashing at me in an enjoyable way, my lightsaber drawn and at the ready, when the doorbell rang. At first I was sure it must just be the waterman with his squatty blue bottles. But then I put down my sword, released the mouse, mopped up my mind, and understood it was the teacher who had arrived. For a moment, I'll admit, I wasn't sure where to stand or whether I should greet him formally or try to appear more relaxed. I decided to try for casual. I would learn his preferences soon enough. I heard mother greeting the teacher in the hall. She sounded nervous and also slightly hostile, as if she wasn't sure now the event was upon her that she should have agreed to the teacher at all. I stepped out into the hall, casually, mind you, to make sure there wasn't going to be trouble. The teacher is a girl, or a lady, I suppose. Although her skin looks tight and young, and she was wearing some kind of shiny cosmetic product on her lips and eyes. Mother introduced us. This is Mara, rational, she said. Then, extraneously, she's your new teacher. I nodded, then bowed ever so slightly in what I hoped was a civil, even gentlemanly greeting. Hi there, Rational, said Mara, and actually patted me on the shoulder. Mother said she would show Mara around, and then we could start our lesson in the computer room. Then the two of them shoved off, as Dad would say, two ships down the hallway. Well, I thought, she appears to be friendly. Whether she is at all bright still remains to be seen. I did not open up the Jedi program again, since I did not want her to enter while I am playing, and assume I am in some way frivolous and uncommitted. 
I sat at my desk with the mathematics textbook in front of me and made some fascinating patterns with the pencil shavings I had piled to the side. The shavings were perfect, curled and crisp, and I enjoyed the way I could fit one snugly on each finger. The black dust, too, afforded some distraction. It smudged and stained the skin of my palms so the lifelines darkened ominously. When Maura finally entered the room, my hands were black with lead and I found I could not stop staring at her nipples. She wore a relatively flimsy t-shirt in a pale peach colour with a black cardigan over top and the nipples themselves seemed to be straining both out and inward like the eyes of an old gauzy cat. In the weeks to come, I would learn that the pale peach t-shirt was in fact an anomaly. Usually, Mara wore only dark colours, and only once did I see her wearing a skirt. It seemed to me she must be an emotional yet reserved young woman. All right, Mara said. Where shall we sit? I stared at her. Mother, too, seemed shocked. What we were looking for was direction and assurance, and this perky rise of a question gave us neither. I decided it was up to me to take charge. I wheeled my computer chair slowly and deliberately over to the other desk, then swiveled it to face the mathematics textbook, then around again so that the seat was open and accessible beckoning even could I have made myself any more clear apparently so Mara shrugged and smiled I see you want me to sit there I nodded and lifted my hands to show their state and the obvious need for me to wash them clean oh were you outside she asked brightly I shook my head no and scurried off. This was a girl who seemed to see an opportunity for conversation everywhere. I would have to be careful. When I came back from the bathroom, hands clean and attitude keen, Mara had settled herself in the chair I suggested. This pleased me. Well, she said when I sat down next to her, I suppose we should begin. She said this with a grin I thought better suited to the laneway boys than a university student, but I decided I would bear with her policies until I got a better handle on her approach. I suppose so, I said, and attempted a grin in return. I always like to start these sessions with a bit of get-to-know-you, so let's begin with a little adjective game. And there it was again, the jaunty uplift at the end of her sentence. I stared at her. She nodded, in assent to what I thought. Mara continued... How it works is we come up with words to describe ourselves. Only the trick is to find a word that begins with the same letter as your name. 
For instance, I'm Mara, so my adjective could be morose or militant or malevolent. She looked at me and I smiled despite myself and saw victory in her eyes. Of course, I'm none of those, but I suppose I could be if you refuse to do your homework. She glowered prettily and lost me completely. Where was all of this going? Mother had said a math teacher. Mathematics, Mara. Instead, I was lumbered with some pointy-nippled, alliterative clown. I waited for her to tell me something I did not already know. She was looking at me, then over at my computer, around which I had taped some of my favourite sayings and illustrations, clipped from Canadian Geographic and some of Dad's old reader's digests. Some were jokes, and I could tell she was calculating how to use them as a point of entry. Runty, I said. Relaxed. Reticent. Rheumatoid. Runny-nosed. And finally, rennet-free. Yes, she said. Then, rennet-free. Then, I see. Then, well then. We stared hard at each other and I perceived her registering something about me. The extent and dynamism of my mind. The latitude and longitude and absolute loopity loop of my mind. How it moved my mind. Mara opened the mathematics textbook. Well, she said again, since you haven't yet had any formal training in math, I thought we'd start with something simple, and then we could build from there. I could see this was becoming a trend. I was forced to agree with what was essentially not my choice at all in order for her to proceed. That day the topic was fractions, and I'll admit that I stumbled through. I could not help but see the dividing lines as small seesawing platforms upon which the numerator balanced precariously above the denominator. A number that nimble had to be more powerful than the one below, and yet this was not the case at all. In fact, according to Mathematics Mora, the bottom number was king, the royal container for the top number. How could this be? It did not make sense, visually or otherwise. I began to obsess over Mara's collarbones, which peaked like lovely smooth twigs out of the top of her T-shirt. It was impossible for me to concentrate on the questions for the final quarter hour. I began to play with pencil shavings, and twice I noticed the upswing fade from Mara's voice as she pointed at my paper, then back at the text as if the simple lines she'd drawn in the air would somehow link my thoughts. I will admit to a great sense of relief when it was finally time for her to leave. Mother stood with Dad in the doorway like a picture in a frame. They looked solid, I thought. Respectable, if modest. Possibly shabby. This was the first Mara had seen of Dad, but if she was at all shocked at his presence, she didn't show it. She stood up quickly and extended her hand. 
Hello, Mr. Raconteur, she said. And I started. It wasn't often I heard him addressed this way. Even Mother calls him Dad. Hello, young lady, said Dad. And how's our young man? He's doing very well, said Mara smoothly, for the first day. Liar, I thought, but smiled agreeably at Dad because of those collarbones. Well, I suppose Mother has given you the tour, said Dad, and waved his hand behind him. Mara looked momentarily baffled, then nodded. Next time you'll have to stay for tea. Herbal, of course. That would be great, said Mora, but I could sense an impatience in her, and something else. Panic, ruffling her exquisite girl feathers. So off she went, my mathematics Mora, to whatever sphere it is she occupies outside of this, my home, which for us will suffice. Which will always suffice. Allow me to tell you something about the place I live. Kingston, Ontario, is a university and prison town with a population of approximately 112,000, not including the prisoners whose number, as you may surmise, tends to fluctuate according to sins and sentences and certain surprises involving spades and wire cutters. The home we occupy, although it suffices, is nevertheless located as I mentioned, on what most people would no doubt refer to as the wrong side of the tracks. Which means our yards are gravelly, rife with weeds as tough as nails, of which there are a preponderance as well. Rusty ones at that. Which means quite a number of my grown neighbours spend their days, as Dad has explained, banging on their own goddamn thumbs in factories and banging on their wives at night. The women are blowsy, with poofed-up hair and terry-cloth short shorts. Skanky, says Dad. Slovenly, says Mother. They are all, according to Mother and Dad, uneducated, with minds amputated through neglect and bad breeding. Nevertheless, we choose to live here, due to economics and humility. Mother has a small job out at the department store, where she mostly stays in the stockroom at the back, sorting merchandise, as Dad's not keen on her having a great deal of interaction with the general public, or the great unwashed, as he has dubbed them. So our income is modest. Mother's part-time paycheck and Dad's military pension, plus the compensation for the fact that he came home a bit fucked up. His words. Still, we won't be here long. Once we are prepared and our route is secure, we will pack up and depart for the bunker. But until then, it is important for me to continue with my studies, to arm myself with knowledge, to ensure my grey matter remains engorged and engaged. And so Mara continues her visits. Every Thursday I anticipate her steps up the stairs to the corridor, the thump of her hiking boots, the swish of her knapsack against the wall as she rounds a corner. The last time Mora was here we became more intimate in our conversation, due to the fact that I was not acting the model student. 
The previous night had been fractured, a throwback to the days of my youth when the stripy men invaded my dreams, climbing in clumsily with crowbars, wrecking my world view. When I was a child of three, articulate in speech yet not versed in the ways of the world, I tried to explain my dreams to mother and dad. I told them of the lone, long-armed prisoner, rowing his way across Lake Ontario, a lantern perched on the wooden strut in front of him, his eyes fixed on his destination, and his destination, me. "'God damn!' said father. Three years old and already the kid's got a soldier's instincts. "'With dreams like that, son, it's mind power you got to use.' You just focus your mentalities in the same way that piece of crud is pointing his lantern. You repel him with your mind. And if that doesn't work, well, you come fetch me and I'll fetch my rifle. This was Dad's well-reasoned advice, and for the most part it was effective. I'd pushed myself down the sleep stairs, and when the light began to grow closer, when those long arms reached like live wires out of the darkness... I focused and repelled. Even when long arms were able to reach mother in the daytime hours, leaving blue marks like bunny paw prints, like mud stains, on her soft arms and cheeks, even then in the nights I could sharpen and shoot with my very own mind. But the night before the intimate conversation with Mara, long arms had returned with a new tactic. This time, Long Arms wore a suit and carried a newfangled laptop. On his laptop, he was able to design and animate virtual handcuffs which floated from the screen and onto my wrists, then glasses that detached from the monitor, fused to my face and blurred my sight. I screamed, but it made no sound. Lightning lacerated the thick night sky. I did not sleep. Consequently, my attention span during the lesson with Mara was shortened, and when she was forced to dissect a word problem with me for the fourth time, with no discernible result, she rolled the pencil into the crevice of the open math text and turned towards me. Raconteur. That's quite a name you have there. Related to some far-off monarch, or coureur de bois. I shrugged. It's possible, I said. We live in a country of displaced descendants. True, she said. Is your father from Quebec? His grandfather came over from France with Cartier, I assented boldly. Cartier, Mara said. Rational, do the math. I raised my eyebrows and she sighed. Do you speak French? Oui, I said. Un peu. But it won't be necessary anyway. What do you mean? When we move, I whispered. Where are you moving to? There was a renewed brightness in her tone. She was interested in me. I described the bunker as I saw it, 
a slope-roofed building made of cedar planks whose bulk was buried beneath the ground. Its solar panels were huge and spotless, gleaming with potential energy. The front door opened with a sound like the entrance to a spaceship or the lid of a jam jar. A tried and true forwop. The stairs leading down to the living area have a railing that resembles a strong birch tree branch, and there are portals along the way for storage and respite. My room is near the front of the house. It has low ceilings and cool dark corners and a set of triple-decker beds. A computer station, of course, and a brother. A brother, eh? Yes, I said, and without meaning to, to fight against long arms. Mara leaned in close and jostled the textbook with her elbow. Who's long arms? Oh, just a character from a computer game, I replied breezily, but under the desk my thighs had begun to tremble. I had broken one of my own rules, to never ever let long arms, or anyone else who tripped me on the way down my stairs, clamber up and into the broad light of day. Long arms deserved incarceration. His freedom spelled definitive disaster for all. Well, said Mara, you'll have to show me the game one day. Sounds like a true villain. I nodded and she wrote some homework for me at the top of a blank page. Homework, I said. She nodded. For the homeschooled, I added, in case she was somehow miraculously unfamiliar with sarcasm. She squeezed my shoulder and got up to leave. You got a middle name, Rational? Yes, I replied. Joseph. Ha, Mara said, and for once I could not detect the mild, artificial inquisitiveness that so often characterised her repartee. Joe, eh? Well, see you next week. Yes, I said, next week. I switched on the computer but turned down the volume so I could hear Mora sliding her feet into her boots and grunting delicately as she bent to lace them up. Then there was a grasp and an obviously unplanned-for step backwards. I slid from my chair and padded over to investigate the hallway scenario. From my position in the doorway I could see Mora's cardigan-clad back, and through tactics Dad had apprised me of, I sensed her nervousness in the way her vertebrae seemed stacked slightly askew. Mr. Raconteur, I heard her say in a tentative, non-mora voice. I craned my head around the corner, risking discovery. There was something interesting about to unfold. The foyer of our apartment is crowded, to say the least, as we have been stockpiling supplies the length of my lifetime. It was when I pushed my call out into the raw, unchecked world that Mother and Dad truly understood the value of hunker in the bunker. The hallway is also a repository for the bottle people. Smooth, see-through blue dwarves delivered every Thursday, 
more a day than collected the following Tuesday when they have been drained. They are awkward and unwieldy and harmless, but God knows we can never trust what comes gushing out of the goddamn government-sanctioned taps. So for a moment, I could not see Dad, or I could only see his arm, which dangled loose like a noodle by his side, then bent to link to his other arm behind his back. At ease. But when I tilted my head slightly to the left... I understood Mara's distress. Dad was naked. Buck. And at ease. Mara took a step forward, then another step back. Dad's eyes were glazed and yellowish like custard, and I could tell he was having difficulty focusing. The tragic thing about Dad is that the Gulf War gave him a syndrome simultaneously clearing and clouding his worldview. Consequently, there are days when the chronic fatigue in combination with the side effects from the Ativan coerce him into a feisty forgetfulness. This day, a Thursday, a Mara day, he had forgotten to dress himself, and it can't have been an agreeable sight for my Mara. You see, Dad is no spring chicken, and although his body is taught in places from the extensive training he's undergone, in others it appears strangely stuffed, and in still others, his groin, for example, slack and overused. I don't mind saying the sight of it terrified me, not for myself or my dad. But for Mara, I was scared she might not understand. I was scared she would never come back. Fortunately, Dad didn't speak. In fact, Dad didn't even seem to notice Mara. He swayed slightly on the spot, then turned and marched like the soldier he was back into the bathroom, where I heard him pissing into the bathtub, mumbling, Shit, shower, shave, under his breath. As for Mara, she was not long for the foyer. I watched her clutch her bag to her chest and charge out the door. I could only hope she didn't scare easy. The day of the trouble at Powell Crash Creek was a Tuesday, and I would put the time at approximately 2.37pm, although I may be out by a margin of three to five minutes. Mother, Dad and I had just finished a late lunch of frozen peas, meatless bologna and unripe tomatoes from the balcony and were digesting quietly around the kitchen table. It was one of Dad's off days, so Mother and I were both glad of the post-meal lull. Dad closed his eyes, pushed out his solid stomach and belched. "'Hunker in the bunker,' he said in the breath at the tail end of the burp. "'Hunker in the bunker,' Mother and I agreed, but with our eyes only. Then Dad heaved himself away from the table and stood unsteadily. He was wearing the T-shirt Mother had brought him from work with the orange piping and large North Carolina ditcal, his blue and white striped pyjama bottoms, and a housecoat with a camouflage-type pattern.' His feet were bare, 
his toenails tough and untamed like those of a rhinoceros. Mother and I sat still, gauging the atmosphere. Mother, Dad said, could I talk to you in the parlour? Mother nodded, and I sank in my chair, relieved. Whatever it was that was chafing at Dad seemed to be unrelated to me and my goings-on. I sighed, then downed some apple juice, yearning for Mara. There were mutterings from the front room, the parlour, the sound of furniture being dragged across the floor. From the velocity and volume of the noise, I surmised it must be the sofa. And then more mutterings. Mother or Dad? I couldn't tell. I smoothed my hair down on my head and arranged my cutlery on my plate in preparation for the day that was laid out before me. I looked out across the table to the sink and above the sink, past the curtains, to the sky. The sky was blue and one fat cloud sat on its centre like a toad. I thought I would ask permission for a period of play in the laneway that afternoon. Just me and the laneway kids under the sky. That, I thought, I can quite easily foresee in my afternoon. I hummed the theme from Jedi Fighter to myself and traced the contours of the toad cloud onto the place map with my fork. Then there was a sound I can only describe as an uppercase POW from the parlour, followed by a CRASH. I froze like a scared rabbit. I was silent like a snake, considering. Long arms, I concluded, and hurried to fetch Dad's rifle. But when I ran out into the hallway, Dad was already there, rifle in hand. Son, he said, and nodded. Then he padded into his and Mother's bedroom, leaving me to assemble the chunks of story left behind. Mother was lying on the floor in the parlour next to the sofa, which was also lying on its side. It was obvious to me that long arms had harmed her, but I could not at the moment locate the source of the hurt. I had a first aid manual Dad had passed on to me for my ninth birthday, and its lessons came into stark effect at that very moment. I circled the area around Mother, checking for hazards, checking for clues. No fire, no wire, no glass, no gas, no bee, no danger to me or to the victim. The area was clear, save some pencil shavings and a shopping receipt that may or may not have slipped from Mother's pocket as she fell. I stowed the receipt in the waistband of my pants for further investigation, then dropped into a crouch and waddled forward towards Mother's head. She was breathing. I could feel the soft spurts of air coming from her nostrils. I dropped then to my knees and bent to lift her arm. It occurred to me that I had never actually seen Mother's inner arms before. The one I held in my hand was pale, the blue lines like ghostly misplaced watercolour brushstrokes. It occurred to me that I should one day paint this curious, innocent arm. It occurred to me that I was staring art in its face. I traced the vein down to Mother's wrist and pressed my index and middle fingers down gently, 
feeling for a pulse I took for granted, given her regular relaxed breathing. The blood jumped like tiny toads in a sack under my fingers, and made my mind jump back to the cloud toad in the sky. I don't often put much stock in signs, but this seemed irrefutable. I turned Mother over to look into her face, and that's when I saw the purple squatting toad on the side of her head. She had not been shot, as I had earlier feared, but instead clubbed, and by the markings of the wound, by a gun's heavy barrel. There was a small trickle of blood running down her cheek like a tear. I lay down beside her and placed her wrist with its watercolours and active toads across my chest. I stared at the trickle, which ran down the toad-shaped mound like a creek down a mountainside. Pow, crash, creek, I said out loud, and placed one of my fingers to the blood, then licked at it quietly. When I first got my computer, I spent a good deal of time performing searches on the internet. Mostly I searched the city of Kingston, Ontario, my city, because I supposed it excited me that the city itself was actually known. It thrilled me that outside people knew it existed. Come see what Kingston has to offer, one of the sites trumpeted, and for weeks, whenever I wanted mother or dad's attention, I would repeat this line. I propped myself up and repeated it now to Mother. Come see what Kingston has to offer, I whispered it in her ear. When she didn't respond, I spoke aloud. Hunker in the bunker. Then, long arms versus the world. Then, trouble at Pow Crash Creek. When she still didn't respond, I began to cry unmanly tears that squirted out of my eyes and onto the toad squatting on mother's muddled face. I began to wait for Mara. I've been writing all of this down at the back of my yellow mathematics notebook, writing towards the middle, towards the beginning, so that, I suppose, eventually the squiggly stubborn numbers and the squiggly supine letters will meet in some confused entanglement, or simply stop, fade into each other. In any case, on this day, the day of Pow Crash Creek, I have decided to write my name on the inside cover. I suppose I always thought it would be a good idea to remain anonymous in case mother or dad were ever to come upon the notebook. I could then affect ignorance and denial, pretend some laneway lunatic had snuck up the drain pipe to channel my spirit. But now I think it might be important for those on the outside to know exactly who I am if ever the book goes missing in action, so to speak. Especially since the next time Mara comes here, I am not letting her leave alone. I will walk down the stairs by her side past the stacks of paperbacks and crowds of toilet paper rolls, my mathematics textbook tucked beneath my arm, and, to the best of my knowledge, I will keep on walking. So here I am going to write my full name, Rational Raconteur, a name not without a gloss of irony if you have some feel for the French, 
which I do. Nevertheless, a name only, a receptacle for spirit and intellect, and in no way an indicator of the person I will one day become.'